Part three, chapter twelve of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. At ten o'clock that evening, Weirother came with his plans to Kutuzov's headquarters, where the council of war was to be convened. All the division commanders had been summoned to meet at the commander-in-chief's, and with the exception of Prince Bagration, who excused himself, all appeared at the appointed hour. Weirother, who was the chief promoter of the proposed engagement, presented by his eagerness and vehemence a sharp contrast to the dissatisfied and sleepy-looking Kutuzov, who in spite of himself was obliged to preside as chairman over the council of war. Weirother evidently felt that he was the head centre of the movement which had already become irresistible. He was like a horse harnessed into a loaded team and going downhill. He knows not whether he is pulling it or whether it is forcing him onward, but he is borne down with all possible rapidity, and has no time to deliberate on the outcomes of this downward motion. Weirother twice that afternoon had been out personally to inspect the enemy's pickets, and had twice called on the Russian and Austrian emperors with his reports and explanations, and had been to his own chancellery where he had dictated his dispositions in German. And now, all worn out, he came to Kutuzov's. He was evidently so full of his own ideas that he forgot to be civil to the commander-in-chief. He interrupted him, spoke rapidly and incoherently, not looking into the face of his colleague, not replying to the questions asked him, and he was spattered with mud and had a woebegone haggard, distracted, but at the same time self-conceited and haughty appearance. Kutuzov occupied a small manor-house near Austerlitz. In the large drawing-room, which had been converted into a cabinet for the commander-in-chief, were gathered all the members of the Council of War, including Kutuzov himself and Weirother. They were drinking tea. They were only waiting for Bagration in order to open the council session. Shortly after ten o'clock, Bagration's orderly rode over with the message that the prince was unable to be present. Prince Andrei came in to report this to the commander-in-chief and improving the permission previously granted by Kutuzov to be present at the council, remained in the room. Well, then, as Prince Bagration is not to be here, we may as well begin, exclaimed Weirother, hastily jumping up from his seat and going over to the table whereon was spread a large map of the environs of Brun. Kutuzov, with his uniform unbuttoned, apparently to give greater freedom to his stout neck, clasped by his collar, was sitting in a Voltaire chair, with his plump, aged-looking hands symmetrically placed on the arms, and was almost asleep. At the sound of Weirother's voice, he with difficulty opened his one eye. "'Yes, yes, please, else it will be late,' said he, nodding his head, he let it sink, and again closed his eye. If, at first, the members of the council supposed that Kutuzov was only pretending to sleep, this time the sounds that proceeded from his nose during the course of the subsequent reading were sufficient proof that what occupied the commander-in-chief was vastly more serious to him than his desire to express scorn for the plan of battle, or anything else. What concerned him at that moment was the invincible requirement of human nature, sleep. He was actually napping. Weirother, with the action of a man too much occupied to waste a moment of time, glanced at Kutuzov, as though he perceived that he was asleep, took his paper, and in a loud and monotonous tone began to read his plan for the disposition of forces for the impending engagement, under the heading which he also read, 
distribution of the forces for the attack on the enemy's position behind Kobelnitz and Sokolnitz, November 30, 1805. The disposition was very complicated and difficult to comprehend. In the original German it was to the following effect. Since the enemy rests his left wing on the wooded mountains and his right wing stretches along by Nobelnitz and Sokolnitz behind the ponds that are there, while we, on the other hand, far outnumber his right wing with our left, it is, therefore, to our advantage to attack the enemy's right wing, especially if we are in possession of the villages of Sokolnitz and Kobelnitz, because we should immediately fall upon the enemy's flanks, and be able to drive him across the plain between Schlapanitz and the Thueris forest, and avoid the defiles of Schlapanitz and Belowitz, which protect the enemy's front. To this end it is necessary. The first columns must march, the second column must march, the third column must march, and so on. Thus read Weirother. The generals found it hard to listen to the tedious details of the scheme. The tall, fair-haired General Buxhofden, stood leaning up against a wall, and resting his eyes upon the lighted candles, seemed neither to listen nor to wish it to be supposed that he was listening. Directly opposite Weirother sat Miloradovich, with his brilliant, wide-open eyes, ruddy face, and elevated moustache and shoulders. In soldierly attitude, resting his hands on his knees, with the elbows turned out, he preserved a stubborn silence, gazing directly into Weirother's face, and taking his eyes from him only when the Austrian commander paused. Then Miloradovich looked significantly at the other generals. But it was utterly impossible to tell by this significant look whether he agreed or disagreed, whether he were satisfied or dissatisfied with the proposed plan. Nearest of all to Weirother sat Count de Langeron, and with a shrewd smile which did not once during the reading vanish from his southern French countenance, he gazed at his slender fingers, rapidly twirling by the corners his gold snuff-box adorned with a miniature portrait. In the midst of one of the longest sentences, he stopped this whirling of his snuff-box, raised his head, and, with a disagreeable show of politeness, carried to extremes, he interrupted him and started to make some remark. But the Austrian general, not pausing in his task, frowned angrily and made a gesture with his elbows, as much as to say, Wait, wait, you shall tell me your ideas by and by. Now be good enough to look at the map and follow me. Langeron threw up his eyes with an expression of perplexity, glanced at Miloradovich, as though seeking for an explanation, but meeting Miloradovich's significant but enigmatical glance, he looked away gloomily and began once more to twirl his snuff-box. Une leçon de géographie, he exclaimed, as if to himself, but loud enough to be heard by the others. Preshevsky, with respectful but dignified politeness, held one hand to the ear nearest Weirother, and had the appearance of a man whose attention is perfectly absorbed. Dokhturov, small in stature, sat opposite Weirother, with attentive and modest mien, and leaned over the map unrolled before him, and conscientiously followed the scheme as it was evolved, studying the places which he did not know. Several times he begged Weirother to repeat some word that he had failed to understand, or the names of villages that were hard for him to catch. Weirother complied with his request, and Dokhturov wrote them down in his notebook. When the reading, which had lasted upwards of an hour, was completed, Langeron, again laying down his snuff-box, and without looking at Weirother, 
or any one in particular, began to discourse on the difficulties in the way of carrying out such a plan of battle, even where the position of the enemy was known, and particularly when the position of the enemy could not be known, owing to their constant changing from one place to another. Langeron's objections were well taken, but it was evident that their animus came from a desire to show General Weirother, who had been reading his plan of attack in the most conceited manner, as though to a pack of schoolboys, that he was dealing not with dunces, but with men who were able to give even him lessons in the art of waging war. When Weirother's monotonous voice ceased, Kutuzov opened his eyes, like a miller who wakes the moment the sephoric sounds of his mill-wheels are interrupted. He listened to what Langeron said, and then, as much as to say, well, what nonsense you are all capable of uttering, hurriedly closed his eyes again, and let his head sink even lower on his breast. Langeron, evidently to wound Weirother as cruelly as possible in his self-love as an author and soldier, went on to show that Bonaparte might easily attack, instead of waiting to be attacked, and, consequently, make all this elaborate plan of battle perfectly nugatory. Weirother replied to all these objections with a steady, scornful smile that was evidently prepared beforehand against everything that might be said to him. "'If he had been able to attack us, he would have done so to-day,' said he. "'You think that he is weak, do you?' asked Longueron. "'He is well off if he has forty thousand men,' replied Weirother, with the same smile of a regular practitioner to whom a woman doctor wishes to suggest some remedy." In that case, he is rushing on his own ruin by waiting for us to attack him, said Langeron, with a slightly ironical smile, looking to Miloradovitch again for confirmation. But Miloradovitch was apparently thinking least of all of what the generals were contending about. Ma foi, said he, tomorrow we shall find out all about it on the battlefield. Weirother again indulged in that smile which said that to him it was absurd and strange to meet the objections of the Russian generals toward what not only he himself but the sovereign emperors had had faith in. "'The enemy have quenched their fires, and a constant rumble has been heard in his camp,' said he. "'What does that signify? Either he is retreating, which is the only thing that we have to fear, or he is changing his position,' he smiled. "'But even if he should take up his position in Thurasa, he is merely saving us great trouble,' and all our arrangements, even to the minutest details, would remain the same. "'How so?' asked Prince Andrei, who had been watching for some time for an opportunity to express his doubts. Kutuzov here woke up, coughed severely, and looked around on the generals. "'Gentlemen, the arrangements for tomorrow, or rather for today, for it is already one o'clock, cannot be changed,' said he. "'You have heard them, and we will all perform our duty.' but before the battle there is nothing more important, he paused a moment, than to have a good night's rest. He made a motion to arise. The generals bowed and separated. It was already after midnight. Prince Andrei went to his quarters. The council of war, at which Prince Andrei was not given a chance to express his opinion as he had hoped, left a dubious and disturbing impression on his mind. He did not know who was right, Dolgorukov and Rothweiler, or Kutuzov and Langeron and the others who did not approve of the plan of attack. But is it possible that Kutuzov cannot communicate his ideas directly with the Emperor? Can't this be done even now? Can it be that for mere court or private considerations thousands of lives must be imperiled, 
And mine, mine, he asked himself. Yes, it is very possible, he thought, that I may be killed tomorrow. And suddenly at this thought of death, a whole series of most remote and most sincere recollections began to arise in his mind. He recalled his last parting with his father and his wife. He remembered the early days of his love toward her. He remembered the baby that she was to bear him, and he began to feel sorry for her and for himself. And so in a nervously tender and agitated frame of mind, he left the cottage where he lodged with Nesvitsky and began to walk up and down in front of the house. The night was cloudy, but the moonbeams mysteriously gleamed through the clouds. Yes, tomorrow, tomorrow, he thought. Tomorrow, perhaps all will be ended as far as I am concerned. All these recollections will have vanished. All these recollections will be for me as a mere nothing. Tomorrow, perhaps, indeed most probably, tomorrow. I am convinced of it I shall have an opportunity for the first time, at last, of showing all that I can do. And he began to picture to himself the battle, the loss of it, the concentration of the fighting at one single point, and the confusion and bewilderment of all the leaders. And now comes the blessed moment, that Toulon, for which he had been waiting so long, offering itself to him. He resolutely and clearly tells his opinion to Kutuzov and Varother and the emperors. All his plans are honored with their approval, but no one offers to carry them out, and so he selects a regiment, a division, imposes the condition that no one shall interfere in his arrangements, and he leads his division to the decisive point and alone wins the victory. But death and suffering, says another voice. Prince Andrei, however, paid no heed to this voice and continued to dream of his triumphs. The arrangements of the next battle are entrusted to him alone. He is still nothing but an officer of the day in Kutuzov's army, but still he does everything by his own unaided efforts. The next battle is gained by him alone. Kutuzov is removed. He is called to fill his place. Well, but what then? whispered the other voices. What then? Supposing you are not wounded ten times, killed, or overreached. Well, then, and what next? I am sure I do not know, replied Prince Andrei to himself. I know not what will come next. I cannot know, and I have no wish to know. But if I wish this, if I wish to gain glory, if I wish to be a famous man, if I wish to be loved by men, then I am not to blame because I desire it, because this is the only thing that I desire, the only thing for which I live. Yes, the only thing. I never will confess this to anyone. But, my God, what can I do if I love nothing except glory only and devotion to humanity? Death, wounds, loss of family, nothing is terrible to me, and yet dear to me, precious to me as many people are, father, sister, wife, the dearest of all, yet strange and unnatural as it may seem, I would instantly sacrifice them all for one minute of glory, of triumph, for the affection of men whom I do not know and never shall know, even for the love of those men there, he said to himself, as he listened to the sounds of voices talking in Kutuzov's courtyard. In Kutuzov's courtyard, the Denschinks were busy packing up and talking, one voice, apparently that of the coachman, who was teasing Kutuzov's old cook, whom Prince Andrei knew, 
and whom they called Tit, kept saying, Tit, I say, Tit. There, now, replied the old man. Tit, Tit, grind the wheat. Tiff, go to the devil, rang the voice, which was drowned by the shouts of laughter of the Denschinks and servants. And yet I love and prize the victory over them all. I prize this mysterious strength and glory, which seems here to hover above my head in yonder clouds. End of chapter 12